The Funny Times is a newspaper full of comics. It's been around for about 40 years, and for most of that time, it's only been in print. The newspaper, but also all of their files. So when it was time to pass the reins to a new generation, it was hard to figure out how they would share the files. There was an idea floated by by Ray, one of the two founders, to send by courier print <laughs> like to print out the cartoons that came in by email and then send them by overnight courier to Bloomington for us to then collect and select from. And you've got a way of doing things. It's hard to imagine doing them differently. This week on Interstates, a conversation with the new publishers and editor of The Funny Times. And then Rita the Cat goes missing in chapter one of The Third Time Rita Left. That's all coming up right after this. Like daily newspapers, alternative news weeklies used to show up in print. In most urban centers, you could open up a little door on a plastic newspaper box and pick one up. You get local arts and culture, strong opinions and the reviews and columns, and features about issues and people too strange or edgy for mainstream media. The one where I grew up was called The Valley Advocate. But there was another newspaper I would see around the coffee shops, too. It was definitely alternative. It was mostly comics. Whether you could get the news from it depends on whether you think you can get the news these days from late-night hosts opening monologues on YouTube. Because the point of this newspaper was similar, if a lot less mainstream than Jimmy Fallon. The point was to make you laugh. And maybe make you feel a little less alone. More on that in a bit. The Funny Times has been in print for almost 40 years now, which is especially impressive considering how many print newspapers have folded in the past couple decades. Get it? Folded. You know, newspaper. Anyway. The Funny Times isn't just piddling along, either. It has a subscriber base that's about a seventh of the New York Times. The New York Times print, but still. The reason I was reminiscing about finding the Funny Times in coffee shops in the college town I was growing up in in the 90s is that I found out the paper has moved its base of operations to the college town I live in now, Bloomington, Indiana. The original publishers are passing the reins to a new generation. So I asked the new publishers, Renee Lesser and Gabriel Pizer, and the new editor, Mia Beach, to come into the studio to tell me about the history of the paper, why they decided to take it over, and what it means to have a print newspaper devoted to the funnies in an age when everything else seems to live online. In the spirit of the funny times, let's start with a fun fact from co-publisher Renee Lesser, who in her current status as a PhD student in education, has to do coursework in a subject she thought there was nothing cool about. Here's actually something really cool about statistics. Okay. <laughs> do you know that the etymology, Finally. this is actually really, people don't believe this, but the word statistics, like the root of that word is state, because it was created in Scandinavia by like state leaders who were trying to come up with a math that they could use to control the sovereign state and understand demographic populations to better manipulate them. And so statistics Damn. has this really nefarious history and, you know, present. That is cool in a nefarious sense. So I asked the group what was special about the Funny Times in contrast to a standard newspaper. Editor Mia Beach started, and then Renee followed up. The great thing about the Funny Times is that it takes the most enjoyable part of the paper for most people and just expands it across the entire paper. And so there are editorial cartoons. And if that's your only news source, you will actually learn things about current events but it doesn't have the journalistic integrity necessarily because the point is making people laugh. And so it does have left-leaning politics, so it's a little different because its politics are very known, and it's very playful. It has a seventh of the print run of the New York Times, which in these days— Would you love to say? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, in these days, like, that's actually just— a really exciting thing Mm -hmm. that there are still that many people out there who like want to receive something like that in their mailbox. And I still like remember being a kid and getting very excited about things like that, getting excited about the comics page in any paper, if it was only one page, but like the whole Sunday comic section. And now we have like, it's a whole paper that's like the Sunday funnies basically. And that's really exciting. And I know people like look forward to that. Because, like, what kind of bright spot do you get? When I get the New York Times, I still get a print copy every Sunday. And, like, it's a, it's not it's a, a bummer. 
in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There's some there's some joyful things thrown in there, but it doesn't make me laugh. We've always organized content thematically, and each page has both cartoons and often written humor as well. And it used to be that the way that we would uh, edit for that was there was a, fi- a physical filing cabinet until very recently. And inside of the, f- the physical filing cabinet were files, and inside of those files would be like cats. So it'd be like a file for cats. So if you were like, oh, I got a funny story, and the story involves cats, but it's also like, oh, I don't know, Halloween cats or something, you'd be like, I'm going to go into the filing cabinet and look under C for cats and H for Halloween, pull those out and see if you could put together a page based on these these themes. But we've actually been doing a lot more with thematic content because we've digitized recently. And I think Mia would be a good person to speak to how the editing is happening now. Oh, yeah. Well, it was pretty interesting because I, I'm a very analog person in all of my artistic practices. I like like things on paper. I still take notes by hand a lot of the time. And it was really interesting to come into a very analog process that had been like running for 30-something years, running pretty well, but also kind of held together with a lot of a lot of on-the-fly solutions that then became permanent solutions, so stop gaps that became permanent. And when you come into a situation like that, it, it is a finely running machine, but it is like a Rube Goldberg machine. Like, it works, <laughs> but if you accidentally, you know, yeah, the filing cabinet is a great example because in this digital age, cartoonists were still sending in. They were still emailing their cartoons. But what the funny times needed to happen was there was a person who would then kind of file them on a CD and they would print a physical copy of every single one of those on the CD. And then the only way to know whether a cartoon was available for use was if it was in the filing cabinet, if there was a physical copy. And that was the only way that you knew that it was available for use. So coming into a situation like that, it's extremely hard to sort of like wrap your head around what the organizational structure is (laughs) because you're like, well, if it's here, we can use it. Everything else is unknown. And no one, no one, you know, if just like people had been, it'd been running for so long, it's like when the machine is running, it's really hard to make these adjustments. <laughs> and so I came in and it was really strange as someone who is so analog that I had to advocate for digital. Because people were literally having nightmares about this magic filing cabinet <laughs> catching on fire. I can imagine. Where yes. was the filing cabinet? Like in our the, offices in Cleveland. In the offices the, in Cleveland. The filing cabinet was in the offices in Cleveland. And what my, my parents' biggest concern in imagining that there could be an editor in another state was how to transport, how to safely transport and protect the filing cabinet. <laughs> I'm sorry. There was, a, there was an idea floated by, by Ray, one of the two founders, to courier, to send by courier print, like, to print out the cartoons that came in by email and then send them by overnight courier to Bloomington for us to then collect and select from. And that would be, like, uh, every couple of weeks, couriers would be dispatched. And it was just like, yeah. The couriers I'm picturing are pigeons. Yeah, that's right. In this case. That's right. right. Exactly. That's about the speed. <laughs> and I, so I was like, well, we, we could email them or we could have a Dropbox. So I created a virtual filing cabinet. Mm. On, and I call it the wow. virtual filing cabinet. <laughs> and then <laughs> Mia invented the, the virtual filing cabinet. Yeah, that's and I, amazing. And I, <laughs> after a lot of deliberation and conversation, I was able to move the physical filing cabinets to Bloomington. So they wow. are here. And I've read every cartoon in that filing cabinet, which is a lot. Well, so, okay, so just another detail about the filing cabinet. Once the cartoon has been published, does it get, it gets taken out of the filing cabinet? And, and thrown away. Burned? Recycled. Away. Recycled. <laughs> yes, of course. Recycled. So I was like, we, we are still a print publication, but we do love trees. So maybe we could cut out just a sheer volume of pieces of paper that are yeah. unnecessary. So we, we have a new system now where everything is digital, and I can just immediately pull new cartoons come in and I read and I say, oh, this this is a cartoon about cats, mm-hmm. sure, but it's also a cartoon about threats because this cat is actually threatening this dog. What would it be like to have a whole cartoon, a cartoon spread about cats that are threatening or things like that? Like what, what if you just like change how we're describing 
these things. And basically what I did was I came in and I had a fresh set of eyes. And so I wasn't really wed to the idea of keeping it exactly like it has been, but exactly like the categories have always been. We didn't have as many like creative categories. And sometimes there could be a cartoon about school. There could be a lot of cartoons about school, but they're not funny if you say they're cartoons about school. But if you put a cartoon about school and a spread about boundaries, that somehow could tickle like a different aspect mm-hmm. of humor for people because the spreads in of themselves can be surprises because so much about humor is a surprise. And as I'm reading these submissions, several hundred every workday, as I'm sorting through these, I'm able to file them away in all these different categories, but tag them so that we kind of understand and we can actually search for things and we can learn when we've published it before. Because it was really hard. You'd have to go back through a physical copy and be like, we did publish this two years ago. I remembered mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so reorienting these spreads to like different types of themes that are kind of a little more creative or in and of themselves are, the, are jokes or puns mm-hmm. is kind of a fresh way to approach this material that did live in a filing cabinet for a really long time, which made it, it meant that it never made it into a spread because of the ones that made us really laugh, they immediately like cross the desk and it immediately goes into the paper. It never uh-huh. even makes it into the filing cabinet. Whereas now some of those cartoons can be in conversation with each other if they didn't necessarily on their own stand out quite as much. Yeah, if they didn't have to live in a physical file folder where they weren't allowed to be in dialogue with the other ones. But digitally, we're allowed to do that. So I had to be the, the weird Gen Xer who was actually advocating for a, like a digital change, which was hard mm-hmm. for me. But I think we're somewhere in between now. We can yeah. access like the benefits of digital technology without some of the problems of analog. Yeah, and I think what you're saying has always been a strength of the Funny Times is that when you make careful curato- when you make careful curatorial choices on an individual page, you can elevate an individual cartoon which might be funny on its own, but is kind of more thought-provoking or like is a kind of social commentary by being kind of in dialogue like you're saying with other things on the page. Yeah, and the the filing ca- as I understood it, things could only be filed at in two folders. So they would print two copies of the cat's cartoon and they would put it in the Halloween folder and the cat's folder. But now it can be tagged with multiple different things, which allows you to just do such wonderful, creative curation of these spreads where there's like one that comes to like the Pride and Prejudice spread where it was... Thank you. I really like that. It was just very clever. Yeah, it was that very was a clever. good one. Like punny I liked that one too. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, actually, I'll correct you because okay. it's crazier than that. It could only go in one folder. You couldn't put two copies in the filing cabinet because then you would have to remove both copies or else you would accidentally print because the right. only way to know that it was available for use is if there is mm. a copy available. Mm. But once we publish it, we don't publish it again. So actually, it can only go in cats or Halloween and you have to make a decision. And this way, we don't have to make some of those tough decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a relief. It's time for a break. We're talking about The Funny Times, a print comics newspaper with editor Mia Beach and publishers Renee Lesser and Gabriel Pizer, who recently took the reins. Renee's parents started the paper. When we come back, we'll hear how a psychic played an essential role in the paper's appearance in the world. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. The Funny Times is a comics newspaper that's still going strong after 40 years in print. Publishers Renee Lesser and Gabriel Pizer recently took over from Renee's parents, who started the paper in part because of something a psychic said to them. Throughout my childhood, we had a family psychic. As you do. Who my parents consulted for many major life decisions. As uh, one does. As one does, (laughs) um, including, you know, the house that we lived in, uh, you know, all all kinds of things. Um, And at this this sort of crossroads moment in their life where my mother had had a stillborn and my grandfather was ill and needed to be, uh, needed caretaking, there was a moment where they kind of needed to do some soul searching. And um, so they went to a mall, the family psychic, and he kept asking them, oh, tell me about this business you're going to be starting in the fall. And 
they were like, the fall? Like, what do you mean the fall? What's the f-? And he's like, you know, spring, summer, fall. And they said, what business? Like, what business are you talking about? So I think that when they um, set off for this road trip, they had in mind what, you know, what is this business that we're going to be starting? And um, so they were on the lookout. So they were on the lookout. And that's why they were like, you know, that's why they were noticing, you know, maybe the the Santa Cruz Comics News stood out to them. That makes sense. So in looking, they were they got inspired in Santa Cruz. They came back to Cleveland. And as they describe it, the early stage of the paper, they were editing it with scissors and glue sticks. They were, as Renee said, the first in the earliest stage of the paper, they did have advertisements and they were bartering with the pizza shop. So they would have pizza every every Friday in exchange for running a pizza ad in the newspaper. And um, one fun anecdote, I guess, is that my mom, when she went into labor with me, was like in her bathrobe doing the layout, trying to get the layout done for one of the issues before she like went to the hospital. So I was very much like born into this kind of space of the family business, which was actually in our house when I was growing up. So that created this extremely colorful, lively home environment where we had employees who were also my babysitters. I was I often would like do my homework on the backside of rejected cartoons. Ah. The dining room table kind of served as a place where we were doing layout and the phones would be ringing with subscribers calling. So it was that kind of environment for we ended up getting an office and the business grew. And so they after running it as an advertising-based periodical for some some number of issues, they decided that they were really they wanted to experiment with it being ad-free and subscription-driven. And in order to do that, they had to create a direct mail campaign where they would mail sample versions of the paper out really broadly and see if folks signed up, if they subscribed. So as the story goes, as they, as they tell it, they sort of were ready to make a break with their back-to-the-land past. And so in order to buy their first list of addresses for that direct mail, they sold six pot plants and their tractor. And they <laughs> sold the land and they used that money to buy the first lists. And they were wildly successful. They had return rates and subscription rates that were way above industry average. Wow. And the story that they tell is they had a shoebox full of subscribers' checks – and they were they didn't cash them because they were like nervous that they whether they would like actually get this off the ground. And so for a while they like had these people who wanted to subscribe but they wouldn't cash the checks. Mm-hmm. But ultimately within the first year or two of being a subscription paper they already had like 10,000 subscribers. Wow. And basically from that point on there were they made a lot of good decisions and good relationships and were able to grow the subscribers from that initial 10,000 up to, you know, 50 or 60 by the 2000s. It actually holds a pretty significant place sort of in political history and media history in the U.S. I mean, it's a, it's the, the publication that – or a publication that published pretty early work by pretty well-known writers and cartoonists. We published Hunter S. Thompson. We published Garrison Keillor, Dave Barry, Linda Barry, Alison Bechtel. I mean, some really wonderful artists and contributors – you know, some of them got their start and some of them gained a lot of notoriety being published through the funny times. And when you look at back issues and you look at the way that it has sort of tracked the sort of political climate, political context through the 37 years it's existed, I mean, it, it feels really exciting to be part of this media object that has been sort of like quirky, weird little thread that's been running through the media landscape of the United States for almost 40 years. One of our staff ran into someone who grew up with the funny times in a really religious household. And he's gay in a, a household that was really not accepting of that and so was closeted. And his really religious family would allow funny times into the house just thinking that it was this very benign acceptable thing because comics are for kids. Mm -hmm. And so like as a queer teen, this was some of his only respite. This is like some of the only stuff that made it into the house. And that type of legacy is something that makes me like really compelled to continue to find like new and cutting edge cartoonists and figure out like what is appropriate now, like what actually makes people laugh now. 
think it's also really striking to think about over the course of the, the history of the funny times, the way that media has changed. And that I think that we've seen, to some extent, a, a decline in print media in a lot of contexts. A lot of newspapers are getting rid of their editorial cartoons. And it's it seems like a really important outlet for this really valuable art form of expression. But it also just seems like people really love the charm of a handmade, hand-curated object that is has a smell and a, a tactile sensation of newspaper that's produced by a small team of weirdos distributed across the country and it's it's been really striking to think about how the how the funny times evolves in a new media context both it's the digital the, the physical object but also we've recently been doing some really exciting stuff to be producing a, a digital edition of the funny times and hopefully some other born digital content that allows us to tell some of these stories in new ways and so it's just been it's just an exciting time we just signed cartoonist Asher Perlman, who's a writer for The Late Show, and he said that when some of his cousins, who are Funny Time subscribers already, saw his tunes in the paper, they got very excited. And it's like, oh, well, he works for The Late Show. He's already like doing something, but they were, they were excited to see his tar- cartoons in The Funny Times. Yeah. I think that's the other thing about The Funny Times is we have we do have this really tight-knit kind of cult following and one of the main ways that people discover The Funny Times, you know, aside from the direct mail, is that it's a really popular gift. So that's I think another mm. difference between most newspapers is that the way that most people came to came to experience The Funny Times was that it was gifted to them. And so our busy season is around the holidays for that reason. And a lot of people are sort of, we call them like mega, mega donors, uh, or me- mega, what do we call them? I, during the mega pandemic, gifters. I, I wanted mega to call gifters. them super spreaders, super but, I was, spreaders. <laughs> but I was voted down. Oh, God. But they donate six or more, they gift six or gift more. Gift six or more. Wow. Sift, a lot of people gift six or more. So this is like the main way that they share their like love and like the gift of laughter with their friends and family. There's a... I've I've heard, although I haven't looked in the database to corroborate this, that none other than Bernie Sanders has received, I think, over the course of a number of years, at least six separate gift subscriptions to the Funny Times, which makes a lot of sense to me. I'd love to hear just a little bit more about why you think the Funny Times has been so successful, especially as this print publication, as so many newspapers have folded. Yeah. So I would say there's basically two main reasons. And the first is that I think it's just a really good product. Like, it has been carefully edited and curated for decades, and people really respond to newspaper that has funny and fresh content that's been carefully and thoughtfully curated and just pleasant to read, a pleasant object to interact with. I think like we found out, or like Sue and Ray found out on that trip, People love to read the funnies. So many people, that's like the reason they look in an entire newspaper is just to get to the funnies. So I think that people really, uh, that's a, a form that is, it's not, it's sort of in decline in other newspapers, but people really love it. And I think that's that's a piece of it. Because there's no ads, it's a, it's a lot of sort of value. It's the, I think subscriptions are $28 a year and you get 10 issues with over 100 cartoons and no ads. And so it's it's really dense with really interesting content. And I also think that in a moment where political news seems important but can often be a bit of a downer, the paper is really – I think people really value it as a place that gives them news, gives them commentary, but it's also lighthearted and fun. And so you can stay informed, but you don't like walk away just like Charlie Brown with your hanging your head <laughs> at the gloominess of the world. And I think that we we really saw that around the time when the pandemic began. There was a, a quite a noticeable bump in subscribers. Hmm. And I think the meaning that we made from that was that this was a, a means by which people could literally share love, share laughter with people that they care about in this very difficult time. And they would get us a gift subscription and they'd get a subscription for themselves and then they'd be able to talk about the things that they're seeing. And it was a really beautiful source of community and connection, which was particularly visible in COVID, but I think is really part of what has sustained the paper throughout the 37 years it's existed. And and then I think the second thing that contributes to the, its, its longevity and its success 
is the subscribers and the relationships between subscribers, relationships between the funny times and our contributors. Most subscribers have been so for many, many years. Most people don't really allow their subscriptions to lapse. They they keep them going. And I think that it... Yeah, yeah just to piggyback on that, I think that some of the ways that we've built relationships with subscribers is part of what what has make subscribers feel so loyal to the paper. For example, we have actual human beings who answer the phones, and they are not anonymous, like random human beings at some, I don't know, like central location. They are longtime staff members who have been with us for many, many years. And so there's people who literally, subscribers who literally call every year and make their put their subscription in by the phone because they want to have a personal conversation and tell a joke. And I feel like that really, you see that level of kind of a human touch throughout everything, throughout the way that we do customer service. And when I was growing up, when we would travel, we would meet subscribers everywhere we went, like all around the country. If we were in if we were in Vermont, we would look up the subscribers in the area. Oftentimes we'd throw like a subscriber party, something for us to kind of host them. And so over the years I've had the chance to meet so many, so many people who are our readers and they're just warm, funny, thoughtful, alive people who who I love. And I feel like that it's like when you love when you have mutual love, then I think that's part of part of what has been the basis for our, for a funny time success. And I think people feel really comforted by the humor and that that connection that they make like with the paper, knowing that there are like names and people attached to it and knowing that they they call into our actual landline and they talk to someone that they probably talked to last year. And when they give feedback, like sometimes sometimes someone will write with feedback that's like really specific, like I really like <laughs> to put this column I like to tape it up on my fridge. And the way that you've started laying it out, I can't tape it up on my fridge the way I like it. And I'm like, you know what? Mike Stevens in Duluth. Okay, it's fine. That's fine with me. I was not wed to that, you know? And so, like, I, I kind of think about, like, that he was extremely appreciative. And he wrote back and was like, thank you. And I think that when they are comforted by something, it, like, reflects in the way that they interact with us. And I think that that kind of personal touch, even if we're not directly speaking to them, it's shown throughout the paper. Like, it's it's actually just, like, I think really clear that it's just some, like, goofy, real people. And so people feel like they can connect with us. And also I, be real. And I think yeah. that it's, yeah, I think that's right. And, and in particular, it makes me think about how I think that as political cultures have become more polarized and fragmented, it can be, it's much more common, I think, for people to feel kind of isolated, especially if they aren't living in places where they're surrounded by people with progressive or, or leftist views. Mm. And I think that especially for people who can feel kind of isolated in those political commitments, I think it can feel really valuable and, and validating to be part of a community where we can look at, we can be looking at the news and this is a whole group of people who are the subscribers to the Funny Times who all see that what Ron DeSantis is doing is absurd. And maybe everybody around you in your real life in person doesn't necessarily see that, but you can know that there are people out there who see the world similarly to the way that you do, and I think that can feel really good. One of the things that I had been thinking about as I was thinking about this conversation was what political cartoons do for us. And you already kind of answered that, which I think the thing that, that I really liked was that it gives comfort, actually. Like, I was like, political cartoons are not likely to change someone's mind, change someone's ideology. That's not what it's about. Clearly, that's not what this is about. It doesn't feel like that's what it's about. And it's not trying to make an argument. But I couldn't really articulate what it was doing. And so it's really great to hear, oh, yeah, it's comforting the afflicted. Well, I just I like to think it's both, right? There's the comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, right? And I think that, like, the idea that it is gadfly, but it is, but in doing that is is comforting to people. Yeah, yeah right. I guess there quote, are other people who are sending it to their oh, the, on your dad's wall. Yeah, so there's a, uh, for years on my dad's wall in his editorial office in Cleveland, he had a quote that was an Oscar Wilde quote that said, "If you're gonna if you're gonna tell people the truth, you better make them laugh or they'll kill you." <laughs> so I feel that is the sort of the gadfly aspect, right? Right. But then the other thing that you're speaking to is that 
I think the the funny times makes people feel less alone. I think it's from my point of view, it's a community, but all the readers don't know each other, but they know that someone made this paper and it's comforting to them and lots of other people are reading it. And so no matter where you live, if you're living in a more rural place or in a place where you're more isolated from like sort of like-minded people, it's sort of this kind of touchstone that makes you feel like quirky people are okay. One of the things that I was going to say just in terms of like um, the element of comfort yeah, is that there are two things that I often keep in my head when I'm sorting through cartoons. And one is this aspect of people feeling seen. And I, like, grew up reading cartoons. Calvin and Hobbes was, like, my go-to as many people of my age. Like, it's it's the go-to. But it, part of the reason why it's so successful is because you are personally touched as a child by Calvin. And you identify. And you feel seen. For me, like, a kid mm. growing up in the country – you know, not able to like go out and like, yeah, there wasn't, there weren't other kids to play with, you know, and there, there is that way in which like you feel seen and that's what that comfort is. And the other element that I really do like to think about is the element of surprise. Like given the sheer number of (laughs) jokes that I read on a daily basis, when something catches me by surprise, I'm like, wow, I've never thought of that, you know, and the more cartoons I read, the less frequent, you know, (laughs) those moments are. But it's really interesting because that element of surprise is very important to humor. And it's really, it's very ever-changing. But one of the things that I've noticed in this, also in this element of surprise, is you can kind of see what's happening in sort of like the cartoonist zeitgeist or something. And people won't know. People aren't going to know what the other cartoonists are drawing. But why are there multiple cartoons with mime fight clubs? That's very odd to me. And so obviously I'm going I'm to notice things like that. I'm going to be like, why do people like to draw snails and squirrels but not elephants? No one seems to find elephants funny. Why not? You know, and I, I have to think. These are the tough questions I have to think about. <laughs> but, I mean, there is something to it. Like why do people sort of like draw on these same jokes, you know? And then why are there other things where like it will pass across my desk or my iPad? And I'm truly shocked at someone having come up with this idea. Like, what is the art that hangs on the wall of a house shared by two combs? Hmm. There's just two combs in bed. What's the art that's hanging on the wall? It's art of like a comb brushing a, brushing, you know, the, a scalp. That's, why, why did someone make that? <laughs> I'm not sure. You've got your finger on some weird pulses. Where, I love it. It's yeah. critical. Like, why did someone make that? But then also, where do I put that? That's mm. odd. I've never figured out, like, where do you place that, yeah. you know? You're now thinking about the domestic life of hairbrushes and combs. That never crossed my mind before. And so, like, I'm really appreciative of that. And I'm, I'm always trying to, like, just surprise people with that and then also show that connectedness because someday there's going to be a mime fight club spread, you know? Someday there's going to be so many mime fight club cartoons that I actually have to just make a spread of them. And that in and of itself is also funny because these people don't know but there's something in the air. People want to see mimes fight. Strange. <laughs> well, I'm glad you have your finger on that pulse. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, me yeah. Someone, too. Someone needs to. The someone first rule to. of Mime Fight Club is that you literally can't you literally talk can't. about <laughs> Mime Fight Club. Which is, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you get it. True. That was really good. That's, yeah. yeah. But that it is a joke. It that, probably is. That is probably that is, in your. That on, is most of the cartoons. That might be most of the cartoons. <laughs> it's, it's mainly that joke packaged in different ways. Yeah. I don't feel so original anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's other ways. So, so little originality in the world. Yeah. As it turns there out. is a way in which when your job is just reading cartoons all day, your sense of humor gets very warped. Like cartoons don't land in quite the same way. Oh yeah, my poor husband can't make a joke because I don't like I'm not on the clock, and so I'm like that's not funny, and I just have to like I'm just like I don't have a sense of like I'm done reading cartoons. Please, why are you joking with me? I just asked you a question. My sense of humor is a nine to five arrangement. (laughs) All right, the funny times is great. I'm so glad to have been reintroduced to it through this conversation and sort of preparing for this. Renee, Gabriel, Mia, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Publishers Renee Lesser and Gabriel Pizer, and editor Mia Beach. The new crew doing their best to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable at the funny times. You're listening to Interstates from WFIU. It's time for a break. 
When we come back, a cat goes missing. Stay with us. Unlike the cat. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. A few years ago, I was having dinner with Kate Young, host of WFIU's Earth Eats, and her husband Carl, and my partner Molly, and our friends Ross and Stephanie. Kate and Carl ended up telling us a story. They had a cat named Rita, and she went missing. And the twists and turns their search took, it was wild. So wild that our friend Ross said, Kate, you should write that or turn it into a radio story. Kate felt like she didn't have the time. And, well, I was out of work, so I did have the time. It blew up into a four-chapter saga. And after a hiatus of a couple years, I'm excited to finally be able to bring you the whole story. Chapter one is coming up, and I'll air the next chapters at the end of the next three episodes of Interstates. Here is chapter one, Losing Rita. Okay. Uh, My name is Kate Young. I am the uh, owner of Rita. I don't know. Um, Okay, let me start again. (laughs) I'm not an owner. Um, my name is Kate Young. And four years ago, Rita lived with Kate and her husband, Carl, and their son, Cosmo. They were happy together. Then, one day, for reasons that are still hard to explain, Rita up and left. When I was five, my cousin's cat had kittens, and they gave us one. It was our second time getting cats. The first ones had come a year or two earlier. I'd named them Bibi and Bubba. They were indoor-outdoor cats. They lived with us for maybe a couple months. And then one day they went out and didn't come back. We never saw them again. So then we got Misty from my cousins. Misty was with us about a year and then she disappeared too. It was December. After she'd been gone a week, we assumed she too was gone forever. It occurs to me now that I don't remember my parents actually making much effort to look for her. I called my mom to ask her about it. Apparently we had looked for Bibi and Bubba. We went around the neighborhood looking, but but no sign of them. I just assumed they found a new home, you know. And we were all very busy because, you know, you were two little kids and dad had the restaurant at the time and, you know, we kept waiting for them to come back, but... They just never did. And we looked for Misty, too. Again, we went around the neighborhood and um, just, I suppose we asked people. We didn't really, we were on the edge of a neighborhood, so we didn't really even know that many people. I don't know what that says about my parents compared to Kate. When Kate lost her cat, she looked for her for months. She went out night after night, morning after morning. That wasn't so much the case with Misty. But then, on my sixth birthday, two weeks after she left, there was a meowing at the door, and there she was. She had kittens a few months later. We kept one of those kittens. I named her Gray. And Misty and Gray, mother and daughter, only about a year apart, lived with us for almost 20 years, till they died of old age. Since I moved out, I haven't had any pets. I'd like to think if I did have a cat, and she escaped, I would be as dogged as Kate was in her search, as dedicated to the possibility of my cat's return, as willing to enlist a whole community to bring a pet back home. Maybe if I'd felt like our country was falling apart and there was nothing I could do to save it, maybe then. In any case, we're not here to talk about me. We're talking about Kate and her cat Rita, who left four times. This is the third time Rita left, chapter one. Losing Rita. We were taking our cats into the vet, not because anyone was sick or anything, but they just uh, needed checkups. Carl asked me, do you want me to come with you? And I said, no, no, I got it. I can handle it. Kate figured she could handle it because they had this big pet carrier they'd gotten from a yard sale. Actually, let's focus on that carrier for a minute. It had come from a family whose kid went to school with Kate and Carl's son, Cosmo. I think it was meant for like a medium-sized dog. And so both of our cats could fit into it. I'm not sure that we had used it for both of our cats before, but we definitely 
knew it was possible. So I just looked up dog carrier brands, and based on Kate's description, it might have been a great choice dog carrier. The top and bottom were separate pieces, held together by clamps. So you can sort of take it apart and clean it or something, or I don't know. But relying on that carrier maybe wasn't a great choice. I should also note that we had had trouble with the pet carrier once before. That time, it was Rita's sister, Pingu, who escaped the crate. She had gotten out of it. She just sort of stood there and kind of froze and looked around and walked very slowly. And Carl managed to catch her and put her back in the crate. But Kate was mentally prepared this time. She and Carl wrangled their cats into the carrier, and Kate drove down to the vet, on her own, with the cats in the carrier in the car. It was about three miles directly south of her house. She passed the high school, she passed the National Guard armory, she passed the animal shelter. Was that the animal shelter that Rita had come from? No one knows. Except for Kate and Carl, they probably know. She pulled into the parking lot of the vet clinic, that same one where Pingu had gotten out. It's in a commercial part of town, pretty busy. There's a subway and a Kroger on the corner, funeral home across the street. Not a place where you'd want a pet to wander around on her own. But that's what the carrier was for. Kate got them out of the car. And as I was carrying them, and I was a little, you know, conscious of the fact that those clips might not hold the weight of these two fairly large cats. So I was kind of holding it from the bottom. I wasn't just carrying it by the handle. In any case, it broke open in the parking lot, and I screamed (laughs) and um, fell down on top of it. I don't know. It was sort of like I I knew this was going to happen or something. But anyway, I sort of threw myself on top of it, and it was too late because Rita had just bolted. I just remember looking up and seeing her backside just hightailing it around the corner of the building. She managed to get the other cat, Pingu, back into the carrier and then back into the car. She was panicking a little. She ran into the vet's office and told them what had happened. They were trying to help. They said, you know, I don't know. I remember one of the vets <laughs> recommending that you should use a pillowcase when you're trying to either catch or carry a cat because it's a way to, it's comforting for them and uh, it's a way for you to really have good control. By the way, remember this recommendation. It's going to come back. Okay, back to the story. And then I called my boss, Amanda, who's also my friend, and she said, do you want me to come down there and help you look? And I said, yes. And so she came down there. Were you, like, you were taking time off work at this point to go do this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was some time during the day, and I should have been at work, but I I was doing this. So Amanda comes down there. Maybe she brought some cat food with her or something. And so she was leaving work also. She was leaving work also, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so they started searching. Rita had run behind the subway at the end of the strip mall. So Kate and Amanda followed her path. At the back of the strip mall, there were loading docks and a retaining wall. Beyond that, a field and a couple of houses. And... They were both abandoned. There was nobody living in either of the houses, which I thought was nice because then I felt like I could traipse around there without disturbing anybody. And at one point, Amanda was like, I think I found her. And so I go over there to where she is and she's like peering under the house and there is a cat under the house. And for a minute there, Kate thought that was it. I mean, I was like, wow, that's amazing. We found her. Oh my God. You know, I mean, like in those moments before I got over there, I was certain that this was going to be a really quick situation. (laughs) Then Kate looks under the house. And it's not my cat. And then there's kittens. And you know that feeling when reality is suddenly wrong? Like when you were a kid visiting your grandparents and you'd wake up thinking you were in your bed at home, but the walls were in all the wrong places? Or when everyone knows for sure who's going to get elected president? I mean, there's no way to the point where Kate McKinnon is doing preemptive victory dances on Saturday Night Live, and you wake up in the morning ready for her victory speech, and it turns out the orange-faced TV character is about to be the leader of the free world. Anyway, was it, like, surreal or anything, or weird to see this cat with kittens? Like, did you have to, like, adjust? Yeah, it was like, wait, there's a cat, but it's not mine. (laughs) Like, how how can that be? (laughs) 
Throughout all this, Kate was panicked. She was crying, worried about Rita. Would she be okay? And then, at the entrance to the basement of one of the abandoned houses, just hanging from a piece of tall grass, she saw a chrysalis, a monarch. And I'd never raised a monarch butterfly from a chrysalis before. I've raised some other butterfly types. And so I was kind of excited to see it. And I I picked it up and took it with me (laughs) and ended up putting it in a jar and watching it go through its whole cycle. I don't know what possessed me to think like that that's something I have time to deal with right now (laughs) while I'm looking for my cat, but I just really couldn't, couldn't resist it. It was such a cool thing to see. Kate said she took the chrysalis because she wanted to protect it from predators, but she never intended to keep the butterfly. You might say she was fostering it. Maybe she was missing Rita. But chrysalis notwithstanding, it was getting clear they weren't going to find Rita. There was just too much tall grass, brush, these kind of wild, abandoned yards. And it just felt overwhelming and impossible to try to find a hiding cat. A cat who tended to be skittish anyway. I I just knew that she wasn't just going to like come out and start meowing at us, you know, (laughs) and we were going to pick her up and take her. So they went back to the parking lot. Kate stopped at every place in the strip mall, asking them to keep an eye out, and gave out her phone number. Then she went home and made a poster with Rita's photo and contact info for herself. She even promised a reward although she didn't say how much. She took the stack of posters back to that area, brought them into all the businesses, taped them to lampposts, put them up at the bus stop, anything she could find. And that evening, she and Carl and Cosmo all went back, searched some more, got more worried. And it wasn't like, it wasn't the same as like your cat's missing and you're just waiting for them to come back. We knew that she wasn't going to be able to come back. It was just too far away. There was too much traffic. It was three miles of strip malls and high schools, armories and nightclubs. If she was going to make it home, they were going to have to find her. We also knew that she was scared and in an unfamiliar place and didn't know her way around. And so she was going to be hard to find, but also that she wasn't just like finding another home or hanging out somewhere, you know, like, like it was, it just felt like she was experiencing trauma and we needed to find her. That's where the first day ended. She posted on the Bloomington Lost and Found Pets Facebook group. Escaped from a failed pet carrier. Around the corner of the building and probably a large dilute calico. ran off Monday, 9 Please call me at 940-CASH-REWARD for information leading to her rescue. Thank you. And went to bed, still worried. What would you do if your cat went missing? How hard would you search? How many months or years would you hold out hope? What I found kind of amazing was that in the days and weeks after that, Kate's family didn't lose hope. They were convinced Rita was okay, or alive at least, and wanting to come home. There was some panic, plenty of worry, lost sleep. But at that point, it was still just about Rita. Kate knew there were other problems in the world. But in some ways, things were looking up. We were about to elect our first female president, after all. The country she lived in was still recognizable, still something like home. But as she kept looking for Rita, all of that would change. That's it for Chapter 1. Chapter 2 will be out next week. Chapter 2 has Rita's first and second appearances in Kate's life. It also has strangers. I was texting with this person, and at some point I realized, like... And questions. How do I know who this person is and what... You know, like... And questions about strangers. Could this be a trap of some sort? You know, like... Like, I'm just... If so, I am falling right into it. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. 
But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. Most of the music in the Rita story is by Ramon Monras Sender. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Backward Collective. Special thanks this week to Renee Lesser, Gabriel Pizer, Mia Beach, Kate Young, and the folks who helped me edit the Rita story. Molly Weiler, Ross Gay, Essence London, and yes, Kate Young herself. All right, time for some found sound. That was Walking in Snow, Western Massachusetts, Christmas Eve, 2022. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Mm